Bibles. What I wanted to do this morning is just kind of walk through one of the resurrection accounts, and it'll just be kind of chill, and ideally, we would be in couches and just hanging out in a living room or something, but um, I just wanted to walk through a passage last year. I don't know if you guys remember this. I know you remember all of our teachings and everything, but we walked through, why did you laugh? Uh, We walked through Luke 24, and this year I wanted to walk through um, John's account of the resurrection. This is somewhat shocking, but there's a little bit of difference between the accounts. Why do you guys think that is? Why do you think there's difference in how John presents the resurrection, how Mark or Matthew? Why do you think there would be differences? So a matter of perspective? It's like a different perspective, maybe? I think that's part of it. Anything else? No? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. The way you tell stories and I tell stories are very different. Yeah. Mine usually takes like 30 seconds. Yours might take longer than that. But I think that's, that's how the gospel accounts work too. Not just in the, the resurrection story. It's different perspectives, but they're also different motivations. Like some of them are writing to different audiences. And so it's not that they change the facts. It's that they present them in different ways to emphasize different parts. Whenever we tell a story, we choose things to include and not include. It's the basic kind of way that we tell stories as human beings. We are, we're actually taking a set of facts or instances and we're changing them and molding them so that they make sense to the people we're talking to. And the gospel writers do this all the time. And they do it for very specific purposes, usually motivated by who Jesus is and who God is and how they want their readers to understand that. So I think it's kind of cool to see the different perspectives and the different ways that, say, John emphasizes the resurrection versus Luke. If you had to take a guess which gospel was written first, which one do you think was written first? Any guesses? Does anyone know what the shortest gospel is? I'm going to start calling on people. Jack Barrett, what do you think the shortest gospel is? <laughs> you've got, you've got this multiple choice, guys. You got four choices. No, Luke is not. <laughs> it's Mark. Tori just did. It is Mark. So here's just a general. Do you think the shortest gospel or the longest gospel would come first? Why do you think the shortest one? <laughs> Maybe. 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 So, yeah, typically it's thought that Mark was written for first, and it was like in the 40s to 60s AD, which is like, when did Jesus live? When did he die on the cross? What year do you think? 33 AD. That's pretty, pretty approximate there. Yeah, that's good. So within Jesus' lifetime, they thought Mark was probably written. And usually they date like Luke before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD because in the book of Acts, it doesn't talk about the destruction of the temple. So that means Luke and Acts, because they were written on the same scroll, was before 70 AD because they would have included the destruction of the temple if it happened. 
okay? So we're just kind of placing it. But John, John uh, was written by John. <laughs> we failed that question before, so I'm just, you know, wrapping our brains around this. Um, John was written by John, and it was probably much later than the other three Gospels. It was probably around 90 A.D. Because John, after he lived, he lived the longest. He didn't actually get killed or... Um, there's supposedly a story that he got burned or boiled alive, but he survived it. Um, if we don't know if that's true or not, just kind of like a church tradition. Sounds awful. Like, I would rather probably just let it take me. Like, <laughs> like if I got boiled alive, I just kind of wish that was the end. But uh, supposedly he got, after he survived that, he got sent off to an island called Patmos. That's where he wrote the book of Revelation, where he probably wrote, this gospel as well, around 90 AD, okay? So it's still within the lifetime of Jesus, but it's much later. So anyway, that just kind of frames up the gospel of John. It's much later. It's got some different emphasis, some different teaching from the other gospels that really highlights this theme of belief and seeing and trusting in Jesus. So the resurrection account is all framed on that. Cool, so is everyone at John chapter 20? John chapter 20 is where we're going to start reading. Pastor Bobby is actually going to focus on 20 verses 11 through 18, I think, today, which will be cool. But before we do that, let me go ahead and pray for us. Father God, thank you for this day, this morning, where we celebrate a risen Savior. We celebrate that you are making all things new. And you've started that in Jesus. You've allowed us, by your grace, to be partakers in that. And God, we trust you that you're going to take our deadness, our brokenness, the mess and chaos of our lives, and you're going to resurrect it because we've seen you do it in Jesus. And we know that you'll do it for all things one day. So God, may we have joyful celebration today. May we look to you and praise you for what you've done. May we see the risen Christ and believe in him so that we can have life in his name. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so John chapter 20, verse 1. Um, I'm going to read a section, then we'll just go back and look at the, the verses, kind of pick us some things out. All right, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture." that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. All right, so let's pause here and kind of just recap what we've just read. 
It says on the first day of the week. What day is that? Sunday. Yes. So this is, do you guys typically know when the Jews celebrated Sabbath? What day was that? Saturday. So this is the reason that early church, the early church Christians changed the gathering time from Saturday to Sunday. They changed it to Sunday because it reflected the resurrection and the day that that happened. So it transferred from Saturday to Sunday because of the resurrection. All four Gospels labor to show that this happened on a Sunday. And why do you think it's important that it happened on a Sunday? I mean, this is just totally conjecture. Why do you think it's cool that it happened on the first day of the week? Any thoughts? No? None? Just think it just fell on that day? Is it insignificant? James? <laughs> you don't think it's insignificant? Hmm. Adam, do you think it's significant? Why? You don't know? It's significant now? Um, I don't know. I don't know why. Jack? Boom, Jack got it, I think. That's what I think. I think, yeah, it's like a new week. It's a new day of the first of the week. I think it symbolizes newness, that something new is happening. I think that's kind of cool. So, but whether or not that that's, that's the intention, I don't know. But I think it's a cool symbol. So, uh, who's the first person that we see coming to the tomb? Mary Magdalene. Does anyone know anything about Mary Magdalene? <laughs> There's a movie coming about, out about Mary Magdalene, and Joaquin Phoenix is playing Jesus. Does anyone hear about this? Yeah, the trailer's out. It's weird. I think they're going to put this weird, like, romantic relationship between Jesus and Mary Magdalene, though. Yeah, it's going to be weird. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. But that's what the the trailer kind of looks like. Like it's going to be this weird thing. But Joaquin Phoenix is going to be playing the Joker and Jesus this year. It's kind of cool. And he's played Johnny Cash. So um, Mary Magdalene. Anyone know anything about Mary Magdalene? Anything. Any factoid? She was a female. Congratulations. It's good. I mean, you just assumed her gender, but that's okay. I don't know. We don't know. No? Maybe? I just, oh, man. Um, someone turn to Luke 8 real quick. Luke chapter 8. Just keep your finger in Luke 20 and go to Luke 8. You're there? All right, Adam, read the first, two ver- first three verses. No, two verses. So there's an interesting fact about Mary Magdalene. So when Jesus was traveling around, this was very typical for like rabbis and teachers at this time. They would travel around and crowds of people would follow them. But also like women would follow them too. So men and women were following them. And for Jesus, this was a little radical at his time. But part of the, or a few of the women that were with him had been healed of evil spirits. One of those was Mary Magdalene. It says how many demons were cast out of seven so Mary Magdalene had seven demons living in her soul or something. And Jesus cast them out, and then she started following Jesus. So she was one of Jesus' disciples, basically, following Jesus around, hearing his teaching. She was present at the crucifixion, and she's a critical part of the resurrection. 
And this is something that is very, very important for the gospel writers. Almost all of the gospel writers, uh, all of them, talk about how women were the first witnesses of the resurrection. And why do you think that's important at this time and age, or, or at their time and age? Jack? Yes, women were not given high status in society. Actually, if they were to go to court and say, like, provide a testimony against somebody, they were not taken as credible just because they were a woman. Like, their testimony, their witness would be immediately thrown out just because they were a woman. So the gospel writers, they're establishing women as the primary testimony and witnesses to the resurrection, something that's going to be totally against the cultural norms of the time. If they were trying to, like, write an apologetic or a defense of the resurrection, even though it didn't happen, they would not have used women. Women would have been a bad idea if they want to establish credibility for a false report. So this is straining. It's the, the writers are, are laboring to show you that this is going to have compelling evidence, even though the witness of the day wasn't going to be very compelling. Okay, so And also, it elevates the status of women. This is what we see in the New Testament. That um, Paul says there's neither male nor female. All are equal in Christ. There's no distinction between um, men and women in terms of equality or value or worth. And we see this right out the gate for, for the resurrection. The first preachers of the gospel were women. The first people to proclaim that Jesus was risen was women. So that was, that was pretty, um, pretty important. So she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb, and she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Who do you think the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, was? Any? John. Yeah, this is how John in his kind of egotistical way throughout his own gospel, refers to himself. He says, you know, the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. <laughs> That's me. Like, he loved me. It's just this weird way of, of John, how he kind of refers to himself in the third person of, or it's not third person, I guess, whatever person. Yes, third person? Okay, sure. Um, this is how he refers to himself, the, the disciple that Jesus loved. So um, Mary Magdalene goes, tells Simon Peter and John, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. What does Mary Magdalene think has happened? Hmm? Grave robbers. She's suspecting. She sees the stone rolled away. She didn't go in, remember? She didn't go into the tomb. She sees the stone rolled away. It was still dark. It's probably a scary tomb. And she, like, peels out of there. And she's like, someone's stolen Jesus' body. We don't know where they have put him. So that's what she's thinking. She's thinking grave robbers. Um, so then, Peter went out with the other disciple, John, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Why do you think John included this? <laughs> He's literally like, okay, so this is John writing about himself about him and Peter having a race to the tomb, and he just inserts in here, he's like, also I won, just so you know. I outran Peter and got to the tomb. Um, I don't know why he puts this first. Some people, some people talk about, like, this has theological significance, like John's followership is going to be better than Peter's followership. I, I don't know. I think John is just being interesting. Um, 
So why do you think why do you think John and P- John beat Peter? He was just more fit. He did CrossFit on the weekends. I don't know. He's probably younger. It's probably because he was younger, and I don't know. So uh, John beats Peter to the tomb, and John looked in and he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came in, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Why do you think it's important that they saw the linen cloth there? So when a body, was, when a body died, or when someone died, uh, they would wrap it in linen cloths, often filled with spices and different things to preserve the body so it didn't smell as bad. Why do you think it's important that the cloths are still there? Hmm? Possibly. Possibly. Any other theories? Is there any other instances, maybe, of someone rising from the dead in the Gospel of John or in the Gospels? Can you think of any famous people? Lazarus. You guys know the story of Lazarus? Do you remember what happens when Lazarus comes out of the tomb? He was a mummy. He was still wrapped in what? Linen cloths, right? So one of the first commands that Jesus gives is to unwrap him. So I don't know. It seems that John is drawing a distinction between Lazarus and Jesus. And as we see later in the account, Jesus in his resurrected body has this weird ability to like kind of teleport through like walls and like locked doors and things like that. So it almost seems that Jesus's resurrected body like kind of went out from the linen cloths or whatever. So maybe it's pointing to that. But also, I think it's a good indication that this is proof against grave robbery, as kind of Adam was saying. They wouldn't actually leave the linen cloths there. These were very expensive cloths. They probably wouldn't have left them there. They wouldn't have left the spices there. It doesn't say they see the spices, but they probably wouldn't have left those either. Very expensive. So it seems that something else is happening, and they probably wouldn't have stole a naked body. They would have stole the body with clothes on. So it seems to, to, to mean for the account that they are seeing that this was not a grave robbery, that something has happened, something else has happened. So um, then the other disciple, verse 8, John, when he had reached the tomb first, also he went in and he saw and he believed. This is a very key thing for the Gospel of John. The key theme for the Gospel of John is seeing and believing. The writer of the Gospel of John is trying to present throughout his whole account of why we should believe in Jesus as the Messiah and have life in his name. So what he's setting up here is that the resurrection for, for, for John was the pinnacle of seeing and believing Jesus. It's, it's knowing that Jesus has risen from the dead that is the center of what you are supposed to see and believe in Jesus. And um, it it links it here to a story that's already been working. It says, For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their home. So they didn't understand that Jesus was supposed to rise from the dead as to scripture's story. Could anyone think of maybe a prophecy or a story in scripture that would point to the fact that Jesus was supposed to rise from the dead? Any story that says, like, 
he's going to be dead for three days and then rise again. If not, what is he talking about here? What scripture is he pointing to? It's actually very unclear what scripture he's pointing to. There's not a clear scripture in the Old Testament. (laughs) Um, I was just going to see if you guys rattled off some things and maybe figure this out. Um, There's actually not a clear scripture in the Old Testament that says the Messiah is going to die, be buried for three days, and rise again. But there are these symbols, and there are these other stories in the Old Testament that point to God doing something like this. Um... There's one story that might stick out to you of someone maybe being in, uh, in, I guess I can't like really tease it, but Jonah, the story of Jonah. Jesus, (laughs) Jesus talks about how he's going to provide the sign of Jonah. And in the same way Jesus, or Jonah was in the belly of the whale, which is kind of like an idiomatic, it's kind of like a way of saying death or shale, which was like the, the grave to be in the belly of the grave, the belly of death, for three days. Jesus is going to be in the belly of death for three days and then rise again. So the sign of Jonah kind of points forward to what was going to happen to the Messiah. Um, The person of Isaac, you guys know Isaac? Who was Isaac? Ethan, you know who Isaac was? That means you don't. (laughs) Yeah, that's fine. Adam? When? So it was Abraham's son. And what did God tell Abraham to do with his son? <laughs> Sacrifice him. So there's a, um, a three-day period where he's going to do this, and then God intervenes, and he provides another substitution. It's kind of this three-day period that points forward. But the point being is there's not this clear scripture. That's not necessarily how scripture testifies to Jesus. It doesn't do so with like strict propositional truth. It often does so in these images and these symbols and these stories that you have to meditate over. And then once you see Jesus, it clicks. That's a lot of how scripture works in the Old Testament. So uh, once they see Jesus, we see this in Luke 24, once they see Jesus as the risen Messiah, they look back on the Old Testament and everything clicks. Once you see scripture through the eyes of Jesus, that's when it truly makes sense. So uh, after this, they see the cloth, they go back home. They go back home. Um, What do you think the significance of an empty tomb is? Why why couldn't Jesus, here's here's a thought, why couldn't Jesus um, just leave his body there and be resurrected as like some sort of ghost and appear to people? Why didn't Jesus do that? Connor Garen, what do you think? Hmm? Yeah. Okay, that, I think that's actually a very good point. Because if, if Jesus' body was not resurrected, then death actually beat his body. Right? Death actually had victory over him. So it's actually a full proclamation of his victory that his body was also resurrected second thing is it it shows our nature as human beings like you are not a soul without a body god created you to be a soul in a body and to have a body with a soul those two things are not supposed to be ripped apart death if you want to think about death what death is it's ripping those two things apart your soul and your body 
And God, in his work of resurrection, is going to put those things back together as they were originally intended to be. And this is what Jesus' resurrection shows us, is that our body is very much in, in part of God's plan of resurrection. Like, our bodies are going to be resurrected in the same way Jesus' bodies were resurrected. We will have bodies in the new creation, in the new heavens and the new earth, when those two things come together. We will have bodies. So I think that's important. Now, there are going to be different types of bodies, as we'll see later in the account of what Jesus' uh, body looks like. But um, I think that's why the empty tomb is important. The empty tomb is important because it shows that our bodies are part of God's plan to resurrect everything and renew everything. So, uh, verse 11, let's read this section. This is what Pastor Bobby is going to preach on today, so we won't spend a ton of time here. But Mary, Mary who? Magdalene, yep. So she comes back to the tomb. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Each gospel account talks about angels at the tomb. And, and I think what's important about that is it's showing that God is intervening here. God is at work here. The angels are always a sign of God is at work. So in the resurrection, God is at work. Verse 13, they said to her, the angels, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. What it, Mary Magdalene still thinks what has happened. Someone stole the body. She's still thinking that. Verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Why do you think she didn't know it was Jesus? Possibly, right? Do you think maybe Jesus looked different? Possibly, right? And that's what I think it kind of like, they can't, they don't recognize Jesus. If you remember in the book of Luke, Jesus is walking on the road with two people to a road to Emmaus. And for some reason, these two people that were following Jesus don't recognize him. And it's kind of this theme of post-resurrection. Jesus isn't identifiable all the time. We're going to see later in the story that's also true, Jesus on the store. So, sure. Some, for some reason, they cannot recognize Jesus. Um, so she doesn't recognize him. Um, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. So she thinks this is someone maybe who's taken him away, and she offers to take him and go bury him again, which is, which is interesting because that means that Mary Magdalene had some money. She was probably a wealthy lady who could bury someone. It was very expensive to do so. Um, so not an insignificant member of society. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. So what is, what is Mary seeing? What is she realizing? It's Jesus. Jesus says her name, and boom, her eyes are opened. This is Jesus. And she calls him in Aramaic, Rabbani. Why does she speak Aramaic? Because that's the language she spoke. <gasps> um, does anyone know what language Jesus spoke? No, he spoke Aramaic. 
So Jesus spoke Aramaic. What are the New Testament documents written in? New Testament. New Testament is not written in Aramaic. Greek, right? So just, just okay, I know. I'm throwing a lot of like, like Jeopardy questions at you guys today. But that's important. And I think it's important for the nature of studying the Bible. So Jesus spoke Aramaic. The New Testament was written in Greek. So what does that mean about the New Testament writers? They are doing what with Jesus' words? Translating, right? So the very first documents of Jesus are translations, okay? That's why when you read through the Gospels, there's different ways that Jesus says things because they're translating his words differently. So I'm all for the red-letter Bibles, right? That like say, Jesus said this exactly in red. Not necessarily. We don't have a word-for-word um, picture of how Jesus said things because we don't know how he said them in Aramaic. Okay? It's just a kind of a factoid. But translation isn't a bad thing. Like reading translations of Jesus' words aren't a bad thing. In fact, the first documents are translations. So, Mary realizes it's Jesus. She says in Aramaic, Rabbani, my teacher, or Rabbi in Hebrew, you are my teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to the Father, to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So what does Jesus say to her? Get off me? Is that what you said? (laughs) Get off me? That's kind of a harsh way to say it. But he says, don't cling to me. Why? Maybe. He's going, where is he going? He's going to be with the Father, okay? And then what does he instruct her to go do? Tell the disciples. So what's happening here? To make a long story short, I think, I think he's saying, hey, look, this is great. Like, I know I'm resurrected, and you want to cling to me, and you want to be with me, but there's work to do. You need to go tell the disciples what's happening, it's great. I'm resurrected. You can sit here and like celebrate that and like we can just, you know, hang out me and you, but there's work to do. You need to go and tell the disciples what's happening. This is something that needs to be shared. This is something that needs to be told. And that's important for us. When we encounter the resurrected Jesus, we're not supposed to simply sit there and celebrate, although we we should, but we also should know that there's a responsibility to tell others about this. Because this changes everything. So we're not supposed to just simply cling to Jesus and keep him for ourselves and our personal, you know, my Jesus and me. This is something that's supposed to be shared and told because it changes all of history. And so she, he's telling Mary, like, there's work to do, especially to go tell my disciples. Um, so Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And, that, and he also, she also shared the things that he told to her. So it doesn't say here, but um, in other accounts, we know that the disciples really didn't believe her at first. They're a little like, okay, Mary's like upset. She's a little delusional, maybe. And she's seen the Lord. Okay. So on the evening of that day, verse 19, the first day of the week, so same day, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Pause right there. Why were the doors locked? Fear of the Jews. What are they afraid of the Jews for? Persecution. Okay. 
more importantly, um, or more specifically, they had just, the Jews had just murdered their leader, right, Jesus. And so being followers of that Jesus, maybe they're concerned they're also going to get murdered uh, or crucified or whatnot. So they're still, they're in fear of the Jews, but they're gathered together and the door is locked, which is an important fact as we kind of move forward. And Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. So somehow through the locked door, Jesus appears. This is one of the clues of his body is not like our bodies before resurrection. He can somehow go through locked doors. We don't know how that works. But he says, peace be with you. Does anyone know the um, Hebrew word for peace? You probably do. You just don't know. Hebrew word for peace. Huh? Shalom. Yep. Shalom. Anyone heard the word shalom before? Yeah, shalom. Like it's kind of like a Jewish greeting. But also, this is not simply a Jewish greeting. It was this concept of what God is going to do in the world and on the world is bring peace. So peace, shalom, was actually like the the climax of all of history. When we see the new heavens and the new earth, it's called Jerusalem, which comes from the words, uh, the Hebrew word city of peace. So it's bringing the peace of God. So Jesus is, again, showing that what he's doing, what he's at work doing, is bringing the peace of God to the world. Shalom. And he repeats it again later. When he says, peace be with you, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Again, this is Jesus' body. There's some continuity. There's some link between his pre-death body and his post-resurrection body. He still has the scars. Right? It's interesting. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. This is important. Jesus is here not to simply be like, I'm resurrected. Cool. He's saying, I'm resurrected and there's work to do. So as the same way the Father sent me into the world, I'm sending you into the world to proclaim the resurrection, to proclaim God's peace. And when he said this, he breathed on them. Or the, in the Greek, it's just he breathed, God, or Jesus exhaled, and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. When did the disciples receive the Holy Spirit? If you've been here on Wednesday nights, we've been soaping through the book of Acts. Yeah, so the, the Pentecost. Thank you, young student. The <laughs> So at the time of Pentecost, it's in Acts chapter, huh? What'd you say? Yes, you did. You said something. What did you say? Oh, oh, you said the word something. It's Acts chapter 2 is when Pentecost happens, and the Holy Spirit comes down, and the disciples are able to, like, speak in different languages. Other people think they're drunk and whatnot, but it's this climactic moment of the Holy Spirit coming. So what's happening here? Is Jesus giving the Holy Spirit here? And um, as, as we're studying this and knowing that Acts chapter 2 is where they actually receive the Holy Spirit, this is some symbolic foreshadowing of what's going to happen to the disciples. Jesus is saying, like, through my breath, my act of new creation, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit later. When it's talking about Jesus breathing to bring life, what does that remind you of? 
creation. Yeah, in Genesis, God actually, he forms dust, or it forms dust. He forms man from the dust, which is like a, an interesting way. Like he forms Adam, which is the Hebrew word for man, from the dust, which is Adama. So it's like this cool way of our link with the earth. But then he breathes into man. And that's what gives us our life, our vitality as human beings. So the breath of God is what enables us to be human. So Jesus, in breathing on the disciples or breathing the Holy Spirit in the disciples, he's bringing about their new humanity. Very cool picture. Very cool picture. So um, they're given this. And what we know is that uh, Thomas, Thomas was not there when Jesus first came. So Jesus wasn't in the room, or Thomas wasn't in the room when Jesus appeared to them. But in verse 24, now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples tell Jesus, who was like totally missing out on this experience. I don't know what he was doing, (laughs) but he wasn't there. He's probably bummed he wasn't there. Um, But he says, uh, the disciples tell him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas says to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails. Weird. (laughs) And place my finger in the mark of the nails, and my hand into his side, I will never believe. It's like, okay, weirdo Thomas, you want to touch Jesus' scars? Weird. But that's what he's saying. Unless I actually feel, touch, the body of a risen Savior, I will not believe. So eight days later, which is a way of just saying a week later, His disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. So it seems that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, heard what Thomas said or something, and now they are, uh, he's, he's doing it again for Thomas who's there. Then he said to Thomas, so he dresses Thomas in the room, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Now, do you think Thomas actually touched the hands in the side of Jesus? Does it say he touched? No. So, I don't know. I think maybe he just, just in seeing Jesus, just like the other disciples, as he saw Jesus, he believes. He says, my Lord and my God. Um, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Which is yes. Thomas has believed because he's seen him. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So who is is Jesus talking about there? People that believe who have not seen Jesus in the same way Thomas has. He's talking about us. Right? Blessed are those who have not seen Jesus in the same way the apostles have seen Jesus and actually touched his resurrected body and seen him standing in the same room with him. We are blessed because we believe even though we don't see Jesus, the resurrected Lord. Now, what's important about that is, though, we believe even though we don't see Jesus, but we believe based on the testimony of people who did see Jesus. The reason the resurrection is powerful, and it's a powerful testimony, is because it comes from people who actually saw the resurrected Lord. They saw Jesus standing in the same room with them. They saw the scars on his hands and and on his side. So, although we don't see Jesus, our faith 
is sourced or, or it's originated from people who did see Jesus. And that's where their authority comes from. That's where their authority comes from. So when we read scripture, we're reading an authoritative testimony from people who actually were with Jesus. These aren't people who are simply making up a story. They aren't wishfully thinking what would have happened if Jesus may have risen from the dead. We are looking at their testimony and saying that's truth and that's authoritative because they were actually with Jesus. And that's true of every New Testament writer. They either directly encounter Jesus or they're getting their testimony from someone who directly encountered Jesus. And that's why we look at their, their writings with authority. So that's important. And here is, uh, we'll wrap this up. I think there's a really cool story in John 21, but we won't have time. Um, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book or scroll. But these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So this is the purpose of John's book. He recorded all these things that Jesus did, all these signs that pointed to who he was as the Messiah, so that his readers would believe. And that by believing in Jesus, we would then find our life in him. So this is the point of the resurrection. The resurrection is an ultimate sign to who Jesus was. And it prompts us to believe in him. But by believing in him, we would have life in his name. Find our meaning of existence in him. We'd find our reality in the reality of Jesus. We'd find our story in the story of Jesus. Our purpose in the purposes of Jesus. Our life in his life. That's what these gospel accounts are doing. That's what the whole Bible is doing. It's pointing you to Jesus so that you believe in him, but then find your all in him. So um, as you meditate on this day, on what Jesus has done in the resurrection, that is supposed to be your life too. The story of the resurrection is supposed to happen to you as well. In the same way that Jesus died, we are to die to ourselves. So that in the same way Jesus was raised to newness of life, we could be raised to newness of life. And this is what the practice of back baptism is showing. When we are baptized, we are entrancing ourselves into that story. We are showing that we are part of that story. We're proclaiming that. So... This story of Jesus' death and resurrection is supposed to be our story, our source of life. And as we believe it, it's, it's made to be our story. So um, I really encourage you guys. It's something really cool. John chapter 21 um, is this story about how Jesus appears to Peter again. And they're, they're fishing, which is really interesting. Like the next day, Peter wakes up and he's with the disciples. And he's like, I'm going fishing. Which is like, okay. But that's a really really interesting point because he's going back to his previous way of life. He sees the resurrection and it doesn't change him. He thinks that he can just go about as normal. But instead, Jesus confronts him and then says, no, this changes everything and you need to continue to follow me. And he restores Peter and all this stuff. So, challenge this week. Before midweek on Wednesday, soap through John 21. Soap through John 21. It's a really cool passage. I think you guys would really enjoy it. Okay? Cool. So, um, services are starting.